We're excited today about sharing information to the AONN membership, and we thank Santa Fe for sponsoring this podcast. I'm Terry Conneran with KRAS Kickers, a lung cancer patient and founder of the nonprofit organization. And today I'm here to speak with two amazing people. Jennifer, would you introduce yourself first? Yeah, thank you so much, Terry. My name is Jennifer Aversano, and I'm an oncology nurse navigator uh, specifically to lung at Northwest Community Hospital in Arlington Heights, Illinois. Hey, welcome. And Claudia, we're excited to have you here too. Would you just give us a brief intro? Hi, Terry. Thanks so much for having me. My name is Claudia Miller. I am the thoracic oncology nurse navigator at the Hollings Cancer Center at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston, South Carolina. Hey, well, you know, this is this is really what it's all about is bringing people together and talking about it. So today we're going to chat about the biomarkers. Claudia, if you wouldn't mind giving us a summary of what biomarkers are before we go dig into deep. So biomarkers are kind of newish in lung cancer, if you will. So it's a broad term that we use to describe certain characteristics of someone's cancer. And then that helps us target those particular characteristics with treatment that is designed specifically for that patient and that patient's cancer. Okay, cool. So are there different types of biomarkers or are they all the same? There's different types of biomarkers. There are DNA level biomarkers, which as you know, KRAS is one of those. And on the DNA level, you can have a deletion or an alteration, or sometimes the DNA strand can be flip-flopped. And then there's also protein expressions. And that's like the PDL one and the CCAM. So if you're tested for one type of biomarker, say the CKM or PDL one, does that mean you've been tested for the other ones as well? No, that does not mean that at all. A lot of biomarkers are what we call NGS, next generation sequencing. What we're looking for with the PDL1 and the CCAM5 is tested a little bit different. It's done through IHC testing, which is also known as immunohistochemistry. And that's done most of the time by tissue. I think there are some IHC tests that can be done by blood, but we're specifically looking for in lung cancer when we're looking at PDL1 and CCAM. We're doing it on tissue. Hey, no, I heard you say CCAM. Is there a difference between CCAM or CCAM5? CCAM is a whole family of glycoproteins. CCAM5 is one of the ones that come from that. Also, one of the other ones that we've seen in the past that comes from this whole family of these glycoproteins is CEA, which is how we measure colon cancer. And we've been doing that for over 50 years. And that is actually a blood test. We wouldn't do that on tissue. So this is a whole family of glycoproteins that we're starting to learn about in different cancers to see how do these biomarkers affect different cancers and how can we target it? Yeah. And we've learned recently through research that specifically the CCAM5 is one of the proteins that is shown more on non-small cell lung cancer, particularly the non-squamous form of non-small cell lung cancer. And it tends to have more of an expression in the non-squame non-small cell. And there are certain clinical and pathologic features to this expression that they've seen in lung cancer, 
which is T division, T cell division, lymphovascular invasion, and a higher histological grade of cancer. You can find CCAM5 on any cell, even on normal cells. So it's not just specific to cancer cells. So it's a normal part of your cell itself. So it's a protein expression. But what they have learned whenever they look at non-small cell lung cancer cells is that there's a higher expression on the cancer cell versus the normal cell. Just to add on to that, you know, this CCAM, it's this family of glycoproteins. It induces pro-inflammatory cytokines that increase binding of circulating tumor cells to the endothelium. Again, this is very high level. And it could be having a role where it increases tumor development and metastasis if we see increased CCAM5 expressing in the tumor cells. Okay, so what I'm hearing you say is that CCAM5 is there in a normal cell under normal development, but if there's cancer, it looks like there are, especially non-squamous, non-small lung cancer, it looks like those might be juicier. They have more CCAM5. Yep, and we're looking for this too in most studies in advanced non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer. Okay, so this is an emerging biomarker. Correct. Okay. And as it's emerging, if um, like my case, I haven't been tested for biomarkers in probably, I think it's about four or five years now. It probably was not done. So this is new. This is a newer test that they're doing in clinical trials right now. You know, again, it would be done the same way that you were tested for PDL one It wouldn't be part of that comprehensive panel that we're seeing now with biomarker testing. So that is something that if you're looking at a clinical trial for patients with advanced non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer, that they might want to be having conversations with their physician where they tested for this and are they eligible for one of the clinical trials that are out there. Okay. So it sounds like it's a little bit more leading edge into the clinical trial space with the CCAM5. Correct. And I will, I will say one thing too, being that it's tested by IHC is something that most pathologists are very familiar with because pathologists do a lot of IHC testing. So if we determine through these clinical trials that this is something that is really cutting edge and is going to make a difference in the world of non-small cell lung cancer, then it's really easily implemented in normal standard practice. We like easy. Is it fast? It is. Can you test? Does it matter if it's like in your lung or if you're, if it's in a node, does the part of your body or where it is matter as far as the testing is concerned? No, it does not. If there are cells there, then that's really all you need. As a patient, I knew I had a PDL one but I was not told it was a biomarker. I was just told this was information. Okay, because I think to your point, it, the biomarker thing, we're kind of led to believe it's either a fusion or it's it's a mutation or that sort of thing. And so there's a little bit of confusion around that. The CCAM5 being part of the IHC testing, right? It sounds as though you could do like a pd one at the same time you're doing the CCAM5. Does that burn up that tissue? Is that something that... It can make that big of a difference? 
So I think when we're talking about tissue testing right now, we're hoping that we have some type of a block where you can do this additional testing. You know, we're always saying tissue is the issue. We want to make sure that when the surgeons are getting the testing, when the pulmonologists are getting the biopsy, that they're getting enough tissue as we're going to be doing additional testing for the NGS, the DNA, the RNA, the IHC testing. And I don't think for this test, and I'm not a pathologist and I'm not an expert, but it never really seems like when we're testing for PDL one that the tissue is always the issue with that. It's usually more for these comprehensive panels that we really need to make sure we have plenty of tissue for that. Just like Jennifer said, I scream it all the time. Tissue is the issue. And so, yes, we always need more tissue, honestly, but it's learning how to be conservative when you're doing these tests. So right now, the space that we're looking at this particular CCAM is the non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancers. Initially, you're going to need to be a little conservative in using it in the right setting and not testing everybody for it, at least initially. We don't know exactly where this is headed, and that's why it's still in trials. So we don't want to waste additional tissue testing that while it's still in trials when we know what we need to be testing and what's available for treatment at this point. So if you're more inclined to be looking at clinical trials, this might be one of the tests that they should use their tissue for. Correct. And that's where the navigator has to ensure that the medical oncologist, the molecular pathologist, and the pulmonologist who's actually going to get the tissue, everybody's in collaboration together to have these discussions about what's important for the particular patient that is right in front of you. That's the person in the personalized medicine, right? Correct. All right. So a good patient to be testing for the CCAM5 would be somebody that would be considered for a clinical trial. In other words, like for whatever reason, they're ticking those sorts of boxes that you have tissue that you can test, right? So if you only have like a teeny tiny drop, it might be something like you want to be real cautious about doing. Yeah. And, you know, from the, the clinical trials that I've seen out there for these patients, and I, I know that there are some more maybe internationally, but what I've seen, you know, throughout the United States here is that, again, this is for patients with advanced non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer who have progressed after chemotherapy or an ICI. So this may be some testing that they might want to do. Should it be done right away? If, if we're thinking that they might need it, that's you know good if we have the tissue. Or is this something that we might want to retrospectively go back and test for if a patient is progressing despite first-line therapy? Okay, so it would be done probably on progression, right? Mm -hmm. Correct. And you have limited options as far as next line of therapy. It's not like you're falling right into a real easy to categorize treatment path as far as, I don't know, ALK or EGFR or, or what have you, right? Correct. When you're trying to work in the oncologic space and making it more of a chronic disease versus just what's right in front of you, you want to know what your next line of therapy is. So this may be something if you know that a patient is progressing, maybe you know what the next line of treatment is, but you know that somewhere down the line, you're going to need it. Right. Well, as a patient, it gives us a whole lot more confidence to know you've got something brewing if I need it. Right. And maybe we'll get there where this will be, you know, a first line of therapy. We'll see the results that the patients are having 
good responses to different targeted therapies that are expressing this. You know, I just don't think we're there yet, but ho hopefully we will get there where we can personalize this more for patients. So since this is leading us into the clinical trial space, how do you educate patients? Is that something that you start with, Jennifer, or you would start with first? I mean, who enters that conversation? I always bring up when I have a new patient, I try to bring clinical trials into the conversation because I think for some patients that could be really scary. People still have this sometimes interpretation of being a guinea pig, that we're trying something new, that they might not be getting the best treatment. So kind of giving a little bit of education of what a clinical trial is, will you be eligible? What does it look like? Just kind of having that brief education when I first meet my patients, I think is really important to kind of give them a better understanding of what a clinical trial is in case it's ever brought up to them. When do you enter into the conversation, Claudia? I personally do it from the very beginning. I don't go into extreme depth, but every patient should know what a clinical trial is, try to dispel any of the myths that they may have heard about what a clinical trial is. So it's a short, brief introduction because you don't want to overwhelm them in, the, in an early diagnosis, but you want to at least plant a seed of what is a clinical trial? What does that kind of look like? When's a good time to introduce that? Well, what is it you actually say to them? Generally, I ask initially what they think a clinical trial is. What have they heard about a clinical trial? And it's going to be personal. Some people know right off the bat exactly what that is, what that looks like, or maybe they've been involved in one before, but there's a lot of people who don't. So start with where are you? What do you understand about this? And then kind of go from there. I agree with what Claudia is saying, because you're going to have the patients that when you first meet them, they're already looking up clinical trials. You know, are they eligible for anything in the area? You're going to have that patient that's educated on clinical trials and are going to want to know, are they eligible for one? But again, you want to kind of get the feeling of how they feel about it. Is it somebody that's going to automatically be very standoffish and be like, no, this is not something I want, where you have to give that education on, you know, why this might be important for them and what that really looks like. I have a lot of education from some of the advocacy foundations that kind of give that education to them. I put it in their folder when I first meet them. So in case that is brought up, I mean, I talked to them about that and I said, you know, we'll come back to this if this is brought up, but I want to kind of give you a little bit understanding of what a clinical trial is in case your medical oncologist brings this up at all. Wow, you guys must have some really educated patients. I had no idea anything about clinical trial. And when I've learned about it, it's completely and totally different than what I thought it was going to be. And nobody ever broached the subject with me as a patient. And it's really kind of surprising, truthfully. My level of inexperience and inaccurate information. So I think it's great that you're taking that, you're starting the conversation with what is it you know, and, and kind of like jumping off into it. And then as the CCAM5 and this clinical trial conversation starts happening, are we starting to see that this is expanding into a different realm of people or is it kind of like the same old, same old people that just kind of keep coming in? 
Well, I think when we're talking about any clinical trial, we have to make sure that we're ensuring diversity and we need to see how do we do that? Is there a lack of trust that we don't have a more diverse population getting enrolled in, in clinical trials? Sometimes having people from their own community talk to them about that or advocacies could talk to them about that, or are there financial challenges? Or again, is there just a lack of awareness? How are we going to bring clinical trials to a broader population? And what are some of the barriers involved with that? Do you have anything you'd like to add, Claudia? I think the biggest thing when it comes to education and education on clinical trials is inclusion. If you make it part of your practice as a navigator to have these discussions with everybody, you know, you just make it part of your practice as a navigator that everybody gets educated on clinical trials. Well, I think that's a really good point that if the conversation happens with everybody, then it's all inclusive. And that automatically includes diversity and there is no exclusion. Well, okay. Is there anything that you'd like to say about CCAM5 and where we are today and where it is we're going for tomorrow, Jennifer? Yeah, I think I think CCAM5, you know, we're going to be hearing a lot more in uh, non-small cell lung cancer, probably sooner rather than later, because these trials are out there and happening. And I think we're going to hear about it in other cancers as well. You know, some of the trials that are out there are metastatic colorectal, gastric, bladder, squamous cell of the cervix, ovarian, uh, pancreatic. So I think that this may be a biomarker, not only that we're going to hear about in lung cancer, but with different cancers, we're going to be hearing more about this. Well, the more options, the better. Claudia, what do you see? I think CCAM5, we have a little more research to do on it, but it's definitely promising. And, you know, we're going to be seeing this with new types of drugs, antibody drug conjugates, where you take the antibody, you put the drug inside the antibody, and then it goes directly to the tumor cell. And it's just, again, that personalized medicine. We're looking at each individual and at each individual's cancer, and we're targeting what they have. What are the characteristics of their cancer? And how can we make it very personalized to this patient? And I think that's the important part, and that's where cancer is moving. And that's why we're seeing such strides in our patients who are living longer and living better. All right. I think we can see that CCAM5 is evolving. It's evolving in non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer. And that gives me as a patient confidence that things are getting better and life expectancy and healthcare outcomes can definitely improve as we keep moving forward in this space. And so thank you guys for joining me today. I'm Cherry Connoran with KRAS Kickers, and thank you to Sanofi for sponsoring this podcast and the amazing folks at AONN for listening. That's it for us today.